This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Welcome back to A Complete History of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films. Joined, as always, on this journey by the legendary football writer Paddy Barclay, author of several biographies, Three of former Manchester United managers, obviously the biography of Matt Busby, which is masked of the Finity Tome, um, the biography of Alex Ferguson, Football Bloody Hill, and is it Anatomy of a Winner, the Jose Mourinho one? The, yes, um, that's right. That's God, that was a while ago, but Anatomy of a Winner, yes. Uh, um, it's a, three, a, a guide to the early life of Jose Mourinho, yes. Yeah, great insight as well. A fantastic book. All three of them are fantastic, obviously, and all three definitive in their own ways as well. Um, we are going through this um, journey of Old Trafford history. This stop takes us through the 1976-77 season, which is quite eventful. If you are watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe on YouTube. Join in the conversation in the comments section. If you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you are listening on. Um, right, Manchester United, back in the top flight. They finished third. They lost in the FA Cup final to Southampton. But teams were now treating this Manchester United side very seriously. Um, they were now they were a very young team, but they were playing a very flamboyant style of football. Not exactly the Busby way, but a team that were playing the Dockety way. Um, what do you think, Paddy, would have been the objective for United going into this this season? Seventy-six, uh, seven. Um, well, I think they would have wanted to con- consolidate that league position. Um, Liverpool were the team to beat. Liverpool now managed by Bob Paisley, um, who had been the assistant to uh, Bill Shankly when the the modern Liverpool was rebuilt. Um, so the United wanted to remain competitive, um, but that FA Cup final defeat that rankled. So the FA Cup was a was another very firm priority. United are back in Europe; they're in the Euro, what's now the Europa League. Um, that was what they earned as the prize for uh, 
for winning for finishing third in, pre, in the previous season. So it's a big season um, with with a lot of priorities. But yeah, that FA Cup final defeat to a second division club, uh, Southampton. Yeah, definitely would have rankled. Um, that was a they wanted a the the the, the aim was a trophy. You know, Manchester United had to be had to be uh, back in open top bus territory. That would that would be the priority. Yeah, there are a couple of players still in the squad who'd had a lot of um, semi-final near misses. Alex Stepney would have remembered those under Wilf McGuinness. Sammy McElroy definitely remembered the one with Norwich when we had him on the <laughs> on the on the podcast. He was still fuming about that one. Yeah. Um, so Norwich in the League Cup in 1975. And obviously the near miss of getting to, to Wembley and, and losing to Southampton in 76. Reminiscent somewhat of the Busby side in the 1950s, you know, losing the FA Cup finals and always wanting to get back there. And yeah. even the Busby Babes were desperate for that day out at Wembley. So, um, And in these days, Paddy, it is fair to say as well, the, these were the days where only one team won the league. So that team got into the European Cup. Yeah. Of the teams got into the UEFA Cup. Trophies were significant. If you won the League Cup or you won the, the FA Cup, yes. the FA Cup in particular was because it was the, the showstopper at the end of the season. Yeah. It, was, it was in its way as big as the league. Not, not Obviously not as important historically now, but in its in its own way as a, as a day out and the, the, the face that everyone watched on TV, this mm. was still the trophy to win, right? Definitely. The crowds um, for, for matches leading up, I mean, now... You know, in 2022, we were talking in 2022, and the crowd, of course, you you back Wembley almost invariably for the final. Um, but the crowds in, in previous rounds aren't, aren't as big. Well, an indication uh, are, are that in the season we're talking about, crowds for FA Cup games are still virtually as, as big as league games. Um, it hadn't got, it hadn't sort of, it, it, it still was comparable in, uh, in importance with the league in, in, in winning it. In, it had, in fact, been more important. I think a, a lot of clubs way back in Busby's time, given the choice between the cup or the league, because of the cups, uh, greater exposure through live television and so on, um, would probably have chosen the cup. Um, Certainly, Newcastle United would be a good example of that. They were the team of the 1950s because of FA Cup uh, exploits. Um, that 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 wasn't quite the same uh, in the season we were talking the middle middle of the 1970s. Um, but it was still it was bigger than it is today, and and the you know the uh, the turnstiles proved that. Yeah, and um, it would be the BBC coverage in the morning, starting at nine o'clock. Yeah. Um, through, I'm remembering the, we're jumping into the future with Mike Duxbury telling me a story about it was the 83 or the 85 Cup final where the, the reporters would be hanging around asking what they were having for breakfast. Yeah. Kind of coverage all day. Um, yeah. yeah. And that was that was the way that people saw the, the FA Cup in the 70s as well. But oh, I, can, I can remember that, Wayne. I can remember closing the curtains um, so that the TV, you know, so that it was dark for the TV. I can remember closing the curtains at nine in the morning, exactly. And and the uh, cameras on the, on the team bus and, and so on. And you, I, I can remember Arsenal being in a cup final once and there were 
singing Irish songs because they had O'Leary and Pat Rice and Sammy Nelson and so on. And uh, so there, there were that kind of insights there that you just don't get these days, you know. Yeah, um, it was great as well. Obviously, football flooded with great characters in those days. Um, the the idea of towing the party line and saying things to be responsible with your profile wasn't exactly the flavour of the day. They could basically say what they like, and, and they often did. Um, but yeah, we talk about the league form first of all. Manchester United, having come back to the top flight, their consolidation basically centred around Doherty really liked the team they'd built. If there was one issue in there, he wasn't decided whether he wanted that hard man in midfield or a goal scorer up front. He wasn't, you know, there was one player missing from it. He felt there was something there. The other problem was the squad depth. Obviously, Dave McCreary was basically like a one-man for every solution. If there was a problem at left-back, McCreary would come on. If there was a problem at centre-back, if there was a problem up front, it was always David McCreary. Mm. So he built. He, he signed a couple of players in the summer, Colin Waldron and Alan yes. Foggan. And these were two experienced players um, in terms of their, their league careers, but they were nowhere near good enough to push United onto the next level. And they both, uh, we'll come on to it later when we go through the squad, um, had very, very short Manchester United careers. And ne neither of those players or anyone else really came in to dislodge this team in the early season. So it was pretty much the team that had gone through. We, we mentioned them in the last um, squad slide of the previous season. Um, so it was Stepney, Nicolo Forsyth, Booker and Greenoff, Albiston of Houston, Coppel, Daly, McElroy, yeah. Hill, and Macari and Pearson. Um, the youthful naivety in the early part of the season was pretty tough. I mean, United win just one in the first five league games. Everyone's looking forward to the cup games. First of all, the UEFA Cup, the first game that they play at Old Trafford is against Ajax. And they win that to overturn the first um, first league first leg deficit, and then they play Juventus in the next round. And um, they win at Old Trafford one nil. Gordon Hill scores an incredible volley, um, and then in second leg, Juventus absolutely tear them to school. This is a great Juventus team, the one that would go on to really dominate Italian football. And yes, they, um, they, uh, they, it, yeah. it was. I've, I've got memories of this um, because this was my. First season as a football reporter, 1976-7. And uh, now my memory may be playing tricks, but I'm pretty sure that the first match I covered in Europe was Juventus against Man City. I think Juventus uh, played City before they played United in that in that European in that European run. And because I, I remember the team, if if, it, if if you don't mind it, if, indulging me on this, because because it was such so important. Uh, I mean, for me, it was pinch yourself time. I was living the dream. I was being sent to Turin to cover a team at Dino Zoff in goal, Cucuredu, Gent uh, Claudio Gentile was in the team. Morini was the centre half. The left back was one of the best left backs I've ever seen, Antonio Cabrini. The captain was a guy called Furino in midfield. They had Roberto Marco Tardelli, the the man who uh, patented uh, goal goal celebrations in World Cup finals. 
They had uh, Roberto Betega still a force at the club uh, today. Boninsegna up front. I mean, it was... I don't want to spoil things here, but they went on to win the, uh, the UEFA Cup that year. And uh, with a team like that, they damn well should have done. Um, so no disgrace, really, to United to get uh, to get knocked out. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I, I covered that that game. And uh, so it was a it was a very special time for me, and yeah. uh, that's why I remember that, that Juventus team. Anyway, back to Manchester United because this is not what uh, our listeners and viewers have tuned in for. They'll, they'll be quite happy to know that they knocked out City before they knocked out United, which which was <laughs> true, obviously. But United, I mean, the, the young kids did well enough. To, so it was still, yeah, it was the beginning or the, the prime of this great event aside. And the mm. Ajax team was the it was post-Cruyff era. There's still some good players in that side, but definitely post-Cruyff, the breakup. It wasn't maybe two or three players in that squad remaining from the European Cup wins earlier in the decade. Um, mm -hmm. But... The good thing for these United kids were that they um, they kept the unbeaten home record, which had been going in Europe since the Busby days. So they beat Ajax at home, they beat Juventus at home. Um, mm. But in Turin, they were absolutely they, they lost three 0 and they were they were physically beaten as well by a really experienced side. And really, it's one of those where that team would have been looking. This United team would have been looking to sort of use that as a learning experience. Yeah. Average age is 23 on that side, so they, they would be looking at um, taking the next level with that. Um, after the, well, around the time of the, the Juventus defeat, United had a catastrophic run in the league where they, they lost five in eight. They uh, didn't win in any of those eight games, but that's mostly due to the injuries that they had, which um, really revealed the threadbare nature of this squad. You had Martin Buchan, who was missing for a key. Yes. Um, key run again. And this, I mean, really, everyone will always do the romantic what-if with this Doherty side. They'll always, and I'll indulge in that as much as anyone, they'll talk about how how great was the potential could they have won the league. But that run of games around the autumn really did expose, didn't it, Paddy? How really, if you lose one or two key players, the squad wasn't anywhere near strong That's enough right. to handle. That's true. And and and, and although uh, Foggan was a... Uh... Fogan in particular was an enormously talented player. Uh, his subsequent career was to prove that at the level to which uh, United aspired, you know, he and Colin Waldron were not significant signings. And we've spoken, we've lavished praise on Doherty as to how he brought back um, the style and panache of, of the of the Busby era. There's no taking that away. But uh, the, the team didn't kick on in the way it, in this season that we're talking about. In a way, a third place and Wembley fin finish had had suggested. No, it didn't. So United were having to weather the storm. Excuse the terrible pun, because. <laughs> It was a storm which brought um, the the final player that completed the Doherty jigsaw, um, Jimmy Greenoff, uh, signed from Stoke City because of um, a storm which had destroyed one of the stands at the Victoria ground, um, as it was then. That's where Stoke played. The, yeah. the roof had been completely damaged and the club needed to, well, they needed to raise funds. 
not yes. necessarily to sell players. They would have probably liked to have keep, kept hold of Jimmy Greenoff, who was their legendary striker. He was going to go down as a club legend because of the things that he'd achieved there yeah. and turning them into one of the great cup sides of the decade um, after a good career at Leeds and Birmingham. Um, but it was a pretty much opportunistic inquiry from Docky to say, we'll take him off your hands and Stoke's financial situation meant, well, that's the way that the money could be raised to sort of save things in the in the short term not a, you know again we took it talking about alan foggan really jimmy greenoff wasn't that dissimilar in profile right in terms of the the caliber of striker obviously greenoff was better than foggan i'm not i'm not disputing that but in yeah. terms of the, the profile of the signing he pretty much suited he followed waldron and foggan in terms of you know yeah. i think that the difference with jimmy greenoff was football brain I mean, yeah. he had uh, a fantastic football brain, um, and he 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 wasn't probably a prolific scorer. I don't know what his num numbers would be, but um, I see him. I, I remember him much more as a creator, uh, a sort of I suppose you could draw a comparison with 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 Dalglish, you know, um, a, a somebody who other players could play off because he was. He was had such good vision and technique, um, it, more than a goal scorer. You know, more a Dalglish than a Rush, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and 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 he was a Manchester United player, if if, if, I, if I can, you know, use that sort of vague and un undefined uh, concept. He was a man. Jimmy Greenoff was. Uh, Manchester United player, and of course, brother of Brian. Yeah, would come, come through the United ranks to partner uh, Martin Buchan in a a, foot, a pure footballing centre back partnership. Yeah, um, you talk to anyone from that squad; they will, um, they will rather generously. But I can see the point of what they're making. They they say that Greenough had the Cantonar effect on that team, um, and he kind of was like a talismanic figure that um, glued. The, it was like calm around the chaos that well calm inside the chaos that was around him you know that you know were playing at such a high tempo that like you mentioned he had the brain he had the composure in there not necessarily to slow things down but to make sense of what was going on in the attack and it made them a much more coordinated attacking team and his arrival i mean the the run of form that once he was settled into that front line you know won five on the bounce after the turn of the year they won eight from nine in the league so the form was was definitely improving, taking yeah. them up from mid table to sort of higher mid table. They weren't gonna um, they weren't gonna win the league. They weren't even gonna challenge for the league. But they were hoping, like you said, for that cup run. Now that took complete precedence, especially after the defeat to Juventus in um, in the UEFA Cup, and they were also eliminated at a fairly late stage, round five in the, the League Cup by Everton, an home defeat there. So they everything, all the eggs were in the FA Cup basket. Um, and it was a strong start to that run. They, they defeated Walsall at home, QPR at home. Um, Jimmy Green off Zelda replay against Southampton. They um, they defeated Villa, who were League Cup winners at home in the quarterfinal. They come up against Derby, um, Leeds United in the semi-final. And like it's almost like in Manchester United history, the semi-finals in the FA Cup is the is the day for the wingers, right? You know, the finals, not so much. They've never been a traditionally great day for United wingers, but the 
in the semi-finals, they would traditionally make, hey, Gordon Hills was the previous year and it was Steve Coppels this time around, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, he got the goal. Funnily enough, I was just thinking about your wingers theory. It can't be a Wembley. It can't be something to do with Wembley because one of the great heroic performances was John Aston in 1968. Mm. So, um, uh, sorry, I was just uh, wandering off feast there. Yes, yes, Steve Koppel won, won the semi-final, took, uh, took United back to Wembley, where, of course, they'd lost a year, a year earlier. Yeah, um, it was a great goal as well. Um, Jimmy Greenoff scoring the other goal on, on the day. Leeds, um, people may remember, I think it was Wolf McGuinness. It, it certainly was, wasn't it? One of Wolf McGuinness's semi-finals, the FA Cup, the one where yes. Best turned up late after... Well, he didn't turn up late, he turned up in his room with a girl, yeah. um, which is a different thing altogether. But um, so that one, I think that one went to two replays and it was settled by Billy Bremner. Um, so we fast forward now, Leeds thinking, you know, obviously they're a physical side, still thinking that they'll have the match of United and United coming out on top, um, couple having his day like he'll had the previous year. Um, and it would be Liverpool waiting in the, in the final. Um, they were league champions. They'd just beaten United 1-0 at Anfield prior to the cup final, and they're also in the European Cup final as well. United yeah. went on to finish sixth in the league. Um, really, Paddy, talk me through what the final um, presented, because you look at this United side, I mentioned earlier, and you just poked a little yeah. bit of fun at it, the, the, the way that the, the Wembley pitch would be a graveyard for United's wingers, but also really, in a way, United's style of play. They couldn't play that way against Southampton, right? They, they, they tried yeah. to play this youthful way, but naivety got, got in the way of that. Yeah. So it was more like, had they learned from that? Liverpool were all obviously going to play this controlled professional way. They, they had such a great way of closing games out, especially when they were in front, they could suffocate yeah. a game. And United really, what they had to do is be economic with the way that they put this style of football and they had to be professional in the way that they weren't used to being and then they had to choose their times and the moments in which uh -huh. to employ this frenetic kind of yeah i mean i hope uh, exactly i hope it it uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that united went back to wembley um as probably almost as great an underdog as southampton had been the year before yeah um i, I mean this liverpool team was a well, you've, you just explained it earlier. You, they just won the league. They'd beaten United at, uh, albeit only 1-0, just, just a week or two before, I think. Yeah. Um, they um, they were, you know, they were, they were about to, you know, hoping to be crowned the, the champions of Europe. I mean, they were <clears throat> a fantastic team. Um, arguably better, more sophisticated than, than they had been under Shankly, uh, under Paisley. Um, and so United weren't, my recollection is that United weren't given much of a chance. After all, this is a United team that's only, what, two, three years out of the, out of the second division, you know, um, and still very much a work in progress. Um, so United were going to need something special or something unusual uh, to beat Liverpool. Um, and actually, 
they did, but not the prettiest, not the prettiest goal. No, um, I think what really counted for United in a way was that Liverpool had just about won the league anyway, and yes. I think it was won by a draw. But after after they defeated United, they didn't win again in the league. They drew three and they lost the last one, so all the momentum had gone, you know, yeah. from because they'd won the, the league quite convincingly in the end, I, yeah, by a single point, but but it had been secured earlier than that. So they were coasting. Um, yeah. And, yeah, they probably did a little bit like United the previous season, probably not took it for granted, but um, were resting on their laurels as in their position as, as favourites. They thought that it would be a lot more easier to navigate. Obviously, United had the not necessarily momentum, but they had this drive that they didn't want to be beaten again from the previous season. You had a lot of players really switched on to the, the um, concentration of their performance because they, if it, there'd been any accusations of, that that had lapsed against Southampton, they couldn't afford for that to happen against Liverpool. Um, mm-hmm. it, it definitely wasn't the greatest of finals in the first half, but United, um, you can read a lot into a singular victory and a singular performance. But one thing that seemed to be the case or seemed to be evident from that 90 minutes, Paddy, is that United were realising, yeah. right, it's good to be gung-go and, and destroy teams the way that we have done and play our natural way. But yeah. they, I wouldn't go as far as saying it was conservatism or pragmatism, but there was an element of knowing, all right, we need to be more respectful of the opponents that we're playing against. Yes. Be more aware of the danger that um, we suffer from because this United team did have na- naiveties in there and they had a yes. flood. They were sort of learning from that as they were growing, which obviously is a sign of the experience that they were picking up. Yeah. Um, this this game was a great example of that, wasn't it? Because, I mean, if you look, the standout performances were from Buchan and Greenough in defence. Uh-huh. Yes, very much so. But uh, after it was a dull first half and, and, and basically United seized they seized the momentum, then they lost it, but then they got it back again. All three goals um, uh, in the match came in a five-minute period. Um, United took the lead. Uh, we've talked, we spoke in the previous episode about the impact Stuart Pearson had. And he had a, a, a very important impact on this game by giving United the lead. It was a long ball forward and uh, a, a, a classic finish, a low drive um, past Clements, I guess it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was Clements. Um, i just looking at my notes. And um, the, the important uh, task then was to hold on to that lead, consolidate, no chance. Uh, Liverpool equalised with another good goal, uh, a sort of... Um, sort of half volley by by Jimmy Case or oh, hit hit the ball on the up. Um you know, no chance for Stepney. Um so that's one all. But United still had that sense of adventure. Um and then they scored the goal that I talked referred to earlier a, a bit of a bit bizarre. Um can you remember it well enough to describe it? I've got notes here, but uh all I remember is I, I, I didn't know who'd scored it. Yeah. I just saw the ball in the net. Makari <coughs> um, strike. Makari who shot, yeah. Yeah. And it um, comes off the midriff of Jimmy Greenoff, 
No, yeah. you can look back at the replay. That shot is definitely going wide from Macari. As definitely. much as he wants to play him, it's going in. It definitely isn't. But it diverts off Greenoff's midriff. And because of that, it completely catches Clements off guard and yep. the ball flies into the net. Uh, even when you look at it, it is almost like fate is directing that ball in because yes. you can't really see how the ball can generate that much power and momentum from a midriff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Even then, you yeah. would think it should direct somewhere, somewhere else, but no, it flies into the net. And um, I think that is United. Again, you're only looking at this 90 minutes in isolation, so you can only look at it and say this is somewhat of a conclusion from that. But it did seem like United inputted this kind of frenzy. That you know they knew that this is a five minute spell that they could take advantage of while the game was not settled as long yeah. as they used that kind of energy which they were they were used to doing um to, to more effect against weaker opposition. But they'd employed it here, it kind of won out and then from that moment on after uh, Macari scored, uh, sorry, after Greenoff scored, yeah. well, that's one you was coming. Um, they, they'll both clear. They both do. Um, but it's definitely Greenoff's goal. Um, yeah. F- without without question, you, you don't need the committee for that one. Um, but after after Greenoff puts the ball in with his um, lower torso, he um, yes. <laughs> United they they do something that they've never done before, which is employ all that the experience that they have been picking up they show this kind of professionalism the defending is outstanding you need Macari and McElroy in the middle to keep pace with that midfield because really they don't have a defensive instinct between them but they really have to show some in the second half of this game yeah. the last 30 minutes for sure and um, because Liverpool um squeeze the net all day look like they're gonna come back and and get an equaliser, but United really um, put in this mature performance. Buchan is incredible, one of his best performances, but it's by far Brian's best performance. He ends up being named man of the match. Um, yeah. It's an upset, um, Paddy, for sure, because they're yeah. heavy favourites. A lot of United fans and a lot of this team look at this game as evidence that United could have progressed to the next level. And obviously, because of what's to follow... There's a quick breakup of this side in in a way, which we'll come on to in a moment. But yes. we'll talk, I just want to pick your brains on the potential of this side. Is this result symptomatic of something greater in the future for United that could have could have been there, or do you think it's just like the Southampton game, a one-off that you know United rose to the occasion and no, they I, were they rode the luck at the end? I kind of think it's very very difficult to predict what would have happened, um, but. I think winning a trophy at the end of a season where they'd slipped from third to sixth in the league was significant. And particularly winning a trophy by beating Liverpool. That was that was a, a sign that that Manchester United, you know, were back. Uh, Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, 
we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Um, I mean, this. don't forget, I mean, everybody talks about Manchester United 1999. Well, if Liverpool had managed to overcome uh, Manchester United in this game, uh, Liverpool would have won that treble mm. uh, of European Cup, uh, League and, and Cup. So... Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a terrific feat, and it it signalled that although it was a time of regression in the league, as I said earlier, <clears throat> that you, that Manchester United were back lifting trophies, and that was significant. So I think <clears throat> that had fate not intervened, um, that yeah, that would have that would have kept that would have, in other words that one game would have saved Manchester United's season. Um, it well, just one thing on the on the team, a, a detail on the team. Um, unless I'm very much mistaken, uh, the uh, absence of Jerry Daly is significant, and I think Lou Macari had by then moved back into midfield to allow Greenoff and uh, and uh, and Stuart Pearson to be the front two. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a that was another development. Um, and and yes, there was there was class all the way through. Jimmy Nichol had taken over from Alex Forsyth, and I think by and large was a was a, was an improvement. I mean, not that Alex Alex Forsyth was a was a was a decent player, but um, yeah, that was and and at left back um, another change. Uh, and again, I think it might have been a slight improvement. Was was Arthur Alberston better than than uh, Forsyth? Um, sorry, Stuart Houston. Um, but, but both both very good players. Um, but Arthur, perhaps more of a a specialist fullback. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Houston. Um, he was injured, broke his leg a couple of weeks before the final against Bristol City on a mm. hard pitch. Everyone blamed the pitch for that. Um, but yeah, Alberson definitely more of a left back. Houston could play across the middle as well, couldn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, not that I mean, Alberson could definitely join in the attack as well. Not that there would be much cause for him when you know Gordon's not going to come back on that side <laughs> at all. Um, incidentally, Gordon um, complained about his performances in both finals. He wasn't happy with them. If you watch him back, he's actually quite disciplined in the um, in the second final. Even though he yeah. comes off, he does come off near the end for for McCreary. Um, but I think he was brought off in both finals, and he felt he always felt like a you know the that was reflective of his performance in there, um, which is a little bit unfair to himself. But you know, it was it was determined that game by the defence and the midfield and the work rate there. Um, you mentioned fate. Put up the um, the team picture, the the celebration picture again for yeah. those who are watching on the video because there's some fair significance by the man stood the, next the, to Tommy Duckett. <laughs> There is. Uh, I mean, the team is is shown for those who don't have the pictures. The team's shown celebrating with the cup, wearing caps and scarves that fans have thrown onto the pitch, and uh, the the coaching staff and and ancillary staff are there. 
Uh, Tommy Doherty, uh, naturally and rightly uh, prominent, wearing a, a kipper tie, and uh, um, his coaching staff around him, including Tommy Cavanagh. I think that might be Frank Blunstone yep. there, who was also on the coaching staff, but in the right neck, shoulder to shoulder <clears throat> with Tommy, uh, standing in the back row of this team pictures of celebrating players and coaches is the physiotherapist laurie brown uh tommy and laurie brown um and tommy cavanagh were a, a familiar sight together they were great mates and um you know often i can remember as a, as a young reporter perhaps going to an away game or something like that and you would in the hotel lobby, they would you'd often find the three of them sharing a pot of tea and a, and, and a natter and being ready to natter to anybody who went past. Uh, however, this friendship was to be placed under uh, unbearable strain. Yeah, um, well... Do you want me to tell you why? Yeah, in fact, yeah, it might be better coming from you. Uh, right, well, I'll... Um, I'll go consult my book because it was a very sensitive matter. Um, Tommy Doherty was married and had been married for a long time to Agnes, his wife. And um, Laurie's wife was Mary. And Tommy fell in love with Mary Brown, his friend's wife. And... Um, when this was uh, disclosed in the newspapers, Manchester United clearly had a decision to make. Um, the when it well, sorry, when it was announced, uh, when the affair was made public, and it became clear that it wasn't just an affair, um, it, it, you know, and that Mary and Tommy would move in together um leaving agnes and laurie um united as a club had a decision to make uh whether to sack tommy first of all um clearly tommy and laurie brown could no longer work together or be friends um and at first it looked and tommy doherty actually paid tribute to the club by Chairman Louis Edwards, Matt Busby still a power behind the throne. He paid tribute to the club by saying, United have said I can keep my job, and I, I thank them for that. However, the debate, the moral debate, or the decision about what to do about the moral dilemma, the, um, the debate shifted. Now, a lot of factors are said to have conspired in this. One was um, Matt's attitude and perhaps even more importantly, that of Matt's wife. Um, bear in mind that, you know, Christian Catholic um, morality was, was a powerful factor in both of their lives. Gene Busby was said to have argued very vociferously that what 
had happened to Tommy and Laurie could there could only be one um, outcome and that was that Tommy should actually lose his job because it would have been immoral for Laurie to have done so as the as it were innocent party um, in what had happened and gradually that became uh, what, what what would happen and uh, Tommy was in fact wrong and he did lose his job um, and and that was it um, you know everything seemed to be going very much in the right direction for Manchester United um, but once again they were on the lookout for a new manager yeah. um, the players insisted that they knew nothing about the affair and they were caught cold by news of the sack as well um there was one of the greatest um stories he's humorous in in the way that he's told sammy mcelroy um was on holiday and he was relaxing in the sea on an airbed having the time of his life just sort of chilling fa cup winner you know one of the well the last busby babe now he's got a trophy finally feels like he's in the united team that you know is worthy of the name um, when a fella pops up next to him in the sea, comes up beneath the, the airbed in a snorkel and a mask, pops up. Hi, <laughs> Sammy. It's Gordon Hill. Gordon Hill has swum up. <laughs> he had no idea he was going to be there, but he's, he's spotted him. Gordon spotted him and he swam out to see him. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. Um, Doc's been sacked. <laughs> So that's how they found out. That's how Sammy <laughs> found out that, um, yeah, he was in, in the sea, in Ibiza. Um, and, yeah, um, the players were, by and large, caught cold by it. They, they all insisted they knew nothing about it. It's one of those, like, retrospective, like, oh, that's why Tommy was absent sometimes at the team meeting, you know, and that's why mm -hmm. Tina Laurie was there and uh, stuff like that. Um, yeah, it was a moral dilemma. I think it was one of those where, you couldn't really see any other way for the club to carry on because it, I mean it was the, the, the dignified thing, the right thing. So couldn't have sacked Laurie Brown, even though everyone, most people said, well, you can find another physio and maybe even Laurie himself would have been fine with that. Um, and the compensation that he might have got in, in lieu of continuing, but Laurie did continue. Tommy didn't. And then the question then turns to like a what if, doesn't it? What could this United team have achieved? They were only twenty three. I mean. The comparison I always make is that the the composition of that side is almost identical to the fledgling side of the Fergie fledglings of 1996. You've got an experienced goalkeeper, Schmeichel, Stetner, an experienced forward, yeah. and then the rest of the side is youthful in you know and, and learning along the way. You know they they're picking up the the odd defeat in, against the experienced sides, but they're learning from them all the time and. That's the that's the big question with this side. How, how great could they have been? We're coming to um, how quickly they broke up apart as a side and with the individuals in in subsequent episodes. But the the fact remains that this was the the pinnacle of this side together. It, it would turn out to be the nineteen seventy seven side. So whether or not you could say that they they could have been this amazing Liverpool side, let's say, well, this is one of the greatest in their history at the start of. Their, I mean, this mm -hmm. is their 10th league title, so it's the beginning of their real strong period of dominance. So whether or not they could have been better than them is one question. But the 
the more um, pertinent point is could they have been the, the challengers, the main challengers in the way that Aston Villa and Nottingham Forest were in the second division with them? Um, let's not forget that they could have won a league title like one of those two teams did, like they could have won the European Cup like one of those two teams did. And that's a fair enough and a strong enough what if. Um, mm. You would have to then, you're delving into all the other things. I mean, the, the first thing is you look at the hit rate of Doherty's signings. They weren't mm. they weren't increasingly good. You know, like a, yeah. a great manager who's been there for a long period of time, their sense of quality of signings tends to improve. You know, the, the hit rate, the success rate of those players they bring in tends to be <coughs> Sound, whereas Doherty's was as un- unpredictable as ever. Um, he brought in Waldron and, and Foggen and they were gone straight away. Greenoff was obviously a massive success, um, but that's still one in three senior signings. You know, not a guarantee that if he did bring in two or three more signings to flesh out the squad to give a more, let's say, for example, the, the, the improvements that people would say this United team needed was some steel in defence some steel in midfield and some steel up front. Basically, a lot of physicality through the side, was, which was yeah. needed, which they didn't have, which could compensate or um, help bring on that inexperience to the next level. So the what-ifs are, are there. I mean, we hopefully we through the through the five years of the Docky era, which we've covered, we've given enough tributes to and plaudits to the way that that team played football to, to give it its own sort of space to speak for itself I know that Tommy was never really you and I both talked to him in later life he was never really there was a period after his sacking where um, he would come out and he'd be critical of his successors and he would you know he was renowned as a bitter old man because of that but I know that you and I both talked to him in his later years it wasn't necessarily the case and he wouldn't always talk with any great philosophical depth about his style of football he liked you thinking that it was off the cuff. Um, I often talked to him. I said, like, I wanted to give his team a little bit more credit because the fact of the matter is, um, Paddy, and you will know this better than I do because you live through most of it in a, a more conscious way, because of the nature of the way that he left the club, mm-hmm. a lot of what Tommy did was almost airbrushed from history, wasn't it, really? Yes. If you want of a better phrase, effectively, not for those who knew, but the club rarely acknowledged it in a full way in the way that they did the Busby era. That that's right, but for different reasons. I mean, you could draw a comparison with um, the way George Graham's uh, um, achievements were sort of airbrushed at Arsenal because of you, you know because of the because he was accused um, he lost his job, you know after. Uh, a bonds scandal, um, uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I hasten to add that the former Manchester United and Arsenal player, George Graham, was, was a bit unlucky in that he was caught and others weren't. But uh, uh, but certainly Arsenal took that um, sort of airbrushing attitude to George and still to an extent do. Um, Man United, the same with, with Tommy Doherty, but, you know, um, I think when Tommy died, uh, we're now talking in 2022, and then Tommy died. Was it last year or I can't December? Remember. I think New Year's Eve 2020. I think yeah. And uh, I think he was given a, a bit more 
credit for, for his footballing uh, contribution. Yeah. It's also worth say, saying that um, it, it, it's a moot point about whether what happened was, was bad. I mean, Tommy and Mary were together until Tommy's death. Um, and, you know, for many, many years and decades of, of love afterwards. So, you know, it would be a, a hard heart that would, um, that would, that would still consider it a scandal or, or I'm sure Laurie Brown might have his views on that, but, um, but I think it, to return to the, to the footballing point that you raised, um, I think, I think at the time of his death, he was given um a proper credit for that i you know you you said before you know you that i might have experienced a bit more i found tommy uh, although easy hail fellow well met and, and and a witty amusing and and, and smile inducing man uh, it, it was quite difficult to get him to talk in any depth about his own fo footballing achievements he would, you know, he would always veer off into a, a wisecrack or a barb against, uh, as you say, one of his successors. He was the sort of the anti-Wilf, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Wilf could never say a word against Manchester United. Um, uh, Tommy wasn't of that view. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, he was. A, he was a wonderful manager, and, and and from footballing point of view, it is sad that we never got to find out how good a Manchester United manager he could be. He had, after all, you know, he'd, he'd had a, a good, uh, he was a very good manager of Chelsea um, for about five or six years before uh, bizarrely resigning and um, turning up at Rotherham. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a, a strange career in many ways. Yeah, um, he ended up, he built a derby after this and then he got to australia um yeah it was he's funny 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 guy I think, I think also you you spoke to somebody a player that he signed i can't remember who it was who was very keen to stress that he wasn't just personality he wasn't just he didn't just create a bubbling effervescent team in his own image that his technical advice to players was very very astute as well you know he was he was a student of the game as well as a, you know, a yeah. jovial practitioner of it. You you would get that um, with the there there are certain players they they would call them docket loyalists, right? They were like three or four players, more than three or four, but there were three. There were players who he was like Marmite, basically. There were a lot of players mm -hmm. who didn't really like his abrasive way, and a lot of players who were completely charmed by him, and those who were charmed by him would see that sort of. Yeah. The philosophical side of him, they'll say it was a lot more measured than than people would give credit for. Um, it was funny because the the last couple of years, obviously the last sort of ten years, almost everything to do with my writing. Um, I was uh, certainly at the start of when I was writing books. Yeah, um, a lot of them were concentrating on the Docky era. Like, so I was working with Brian. I mean, I mean. I've worked with three. I did, the biographies of three of that FA Cup winning side I've been fortunate enough to write, yeah. Sam, Brian, and, and Gordon. And um, three of those loyalists, by the way, it should be said, they were absolute yeah. docky disciples. And um, when I was writing the, the book on the second division season, when I was writing the Too Good to Go Down, the film that we did that you, you were in as well, 
Mm. We, um, I was always at pains to tell Tommy, like, oh, I really hope that, you know, I'm doing a lot of work here that I really want to try and make sure that people of this generation and an, old, an older generation know that we're turning the clock back a little bit and giving you the respects that you deserve for, for, for the job that you did. Um, I know it's a bit late in the day for you. And he was like, you know, obviously long in the tooth. He didn't really care. Skin like a rhino. And yeah. I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm doing it for my own pleasure then, Tommy. I'm doing it for me and I like doing it. But then yeah. when, um, after the film came out, he re- I, I, we were sat watching the film with him in the, um, the screening that we had in Manchester. I was sat next to him and I was like always looking across at him, you know, like, are we doing himself justice? I mean, he yeah. was laughing along with it. Uh, yeah. Even when the, the the players who were having a little bit of a dig at him, like Willie Morgan and Jim McCallyog, they when they were having a little bit of a dig, he was laughing along with it. And at the end, <laughs> he applauded. And the last time I saw him, um, I, I took him a few copies of the book along. So obviously the book and the film came to, together. Yeah. And he signed my copy. I didn't see it until I'd left. But he, in, the, in my copy of the book, he wrote, thanks for everything. Oh. I thought, you wily old get. You know, <laughs> got, got me quite emotional that like all that work I'd done over all those years that he actually did mean something to him. Yeah, and, um, yeah, he was like that. He could catch you out a little bit. Um, yeah, I can see why a lot of people were fond of him. But yeah, he, um, I, I certainly was uh, Wayne. Um, uh, I, I liked him a lot. He was um, generous with his time and his spirit. Yeah, let's run through the squad um, very quickly. See how quickly we can do this. The goalkeepers, Alex Stepney, 57 games, so he's definitely the ending um, the Docket era as first choice. 57, 40 in the league. Paddy Roach made the other two league appearances, and they were um, the only two that he made all season. Arthur Albiston, 25 appearances in all competitions, 17 of those in the league, and obviously in the FA Cup final. Martin Buchan missed some games, but he played 46 in all competitions, 33 in the league. Alex Forsyth, like you mentioned earlier, had lost his place to Jimmy Nickel. now made five appearances, four of those in the league. Brian Greenoff, definitely first choice alongside Martin, 57 appearances, the most of any outfield player, um, five goals, three goals in 40 in the league. Stuart Houston, left back, five goals in 51 appearances, three in 36 in the league. Jimmy Nickel, one in 55 um, in all competitions and no goals. <laughs> 39 league appearances. That brings us on to Steve Patterson. Um, played in defence and up from a teenager nicknamed Pelly in the youth team, but um, he played as a centre-back for United. Um, I don't know if there are many centre-offs who have been called Pelly in their time. He signed from Highland. Yeah, Steve Patterson could, it was, I think, originally a, a centre-forward, or, or he was one of those... Um, who could play both uh, centre forward yeah. or centre half? Hence, I think I I I I don't know if the Pele was ironic, but he was uh, yeah he could play as well. <laughs> yeah. um, his first appearance, he actually signed from Highland League club Nairn County. Yeah, his first appearance for United came as a sub for Gordon Hill as um, Tommy Ducky went conservative to try and close the game out against Ajax with yeah. 15 minutes to go. A little bit of history here. It was the first yeah. time ever that a second substitute was used in a game for United, and, and Steve yeah. was that second substitute. Um, the other new defender for this season was Colin Waldron, as we mentioned earlier. He was yeah. a centre-off, signed really to play in the reserves there as senior backup. He played for Berwick, 
Chelsea and most notably Burnley. He yeah. played 300 league games and, and being club captain at Turf Moor, being released by them in the summer. He wasn't at the club. He played um, these four appearances at the very early start of this season um, with um, Martin Buchan's injury. He played in a 4-0 defeat at West Brom um, and then Sunderland signed him from United before Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, at the midfield, Jonathan Clark made only one appearance and no, that's not an extra from the set of Green Jill. <laughs> Jonathan Clark. He definitely looks like he's that's a, a visual joke. Um, but you can work it. Those without the pictures can work can work that yeah. way. Um yeah, midfielder. He made his debut um age just 17, Swansea Bone, just this one appearance as a substitute against Sunderland in November. He was a twice capped Welsh schoolboy. Who joined as a trainee in March 1975. But yeah, just this one substitute appearance for the club. Steve Coppel, first choice on the right, eight goals in 56, six in 40 in the league. Jerry Daly, as you mentioned, um, lost his place due to the um, signing of Jimmy Greenoff, seven in 28 in all competitions, four in 17 in the league. Tommy Jackson, who signed last season, plays just three games, two of those in the league. David McCreary, 24 substitute appearances in his 37 appearances, two goals, two goals in 29, 25 league games, 16 of those from the bench. Uh, Chris McGraw, um, a, cent, a central midfielder and also a winger as well. He used to play for Spurs, um, a winger at Spurs, more of a midfielder at United. So highly rated by Tommy Dockey that he drove to Tommy drove to Scotland in his Mercedes to meet the family. Um, and yeah, he said he was one of those who said Tommy sometimes gets portrayed as a joker in the dressing room, but he wasn't like that. He worked really hard with the, all the players, made sure we all knew our roles and how best we could carry them out. And he was methodical. By the time it came to match days, we didn't need any big tactical discussions before the kickoff. Tommy and all his colleagues had done the planning and preparation beforehand. He was one of those people who made us feel all made us all feel special. Signed for thirty thousand. Played only seven games this season, um, six of those in the league, um, five of those seven from the bench. Sammy McElroy, um, 57 appearances, one of those from the bench, three goals, two in 40 in the league. you got Alan Foggan then, um, one of those signings that we mentioned at the start of the season. He won schoolboy sprinting competitions, um, so he was a definite rapid forward. Came through the ranks at Newcastle, where he scored in their 1969 Fairs Cup win. Played 115 league games for Middlesbrough and scored 45 goals. He was signed for United from Hartford by St. Ten Hills in the US for around £40,000 in July. But played just three games, two of them, ironically enough, against Newcastle and Middlesbrough before he was sold to Sunderland for twenty-five thousand, becoming one of the few players to represent all three big northeast clubs. Sorry, Darlington fans, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to offend anyone with that. Um, Gordon Hill, the other winger, twenty-two goals in fifty-six games, fifteen in thirty-nine in all competitions. Lou Macari in the front line. 14 goals in 53 in all competitions, 9 in 38 in the league. Stuart Pearson, 19 in 53 and 15 in 39 in the league. And that brings us on nicely to Jimmy Greenoff, the Eric Cantona of this team, 30 years of age when he was signed, bags of experience, a club legend at Stoke. But again, as you said earlier, um, had a, not, not a tall striker, not likely to get you more than 20 goals. 
but his footballing brain and his composure and his sense of timing made him a perfect player for this Doherty team. Um, United's colours this season were red, white and black. Um, the away kit was still that white one with black stripes. Admiral and Adidas had actually been in dispute over the pre-season about this. Originally, Admiral had released the kit with three three stripes, but that was the trademark of Adidas. So Admiral had to put a fourth stripe on. Eventually, they came to a settlement where the, you know Admiral paid Adidas some money and they took the fourth stripe off, stripe <laughs> off so they went back to three. Um, a merchandiser's dream to sell three versions of the same strip for sure. Um, and United's third kit this season was like the home one, same design, but it was a blue shirt with white shorts and black socks. Um, the United review was this. They've changed the cover again, this time with these graphics on. Um, if you just can see, if you're watching the video version, it's got a, a Mount Rushmore-style Tommy Docker <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. Alex Stepney and Goldeness poor holding the, the scarf up and a non-specific mid midfielder on the ball there. It looks like could be Lou McCorry, um, also could be um, Chris McGraw, as we went through short earlier. Yeah, it could um, be pretty well anyone, actually, couldn't it? Oh, happy, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Yeah, we got the Christmas version up as well. We've got... Uh, <laughs> Santa in football boots <laughs> and United socks, but he's still got his jacket on, of course, because you would want to wear the jacket because it'd be pretty nippy at Christmas. Um, the um, let's have a look. The average attendance at Old Trafford up by 100 to 53,390. Um, elsewhere in football, Liverpool won the league, the 10th title, European Cup for the first time, and Villa won the League Cup. That's it for this episode, guys. Um, United win the FA Cup but lose their manager, Tommy Docker. How will they fare in the post-Docker era? We will be back to cover that, whoever the successor may be. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give it a like and a subscribe on the YouTube channel. And um, join in the comment section, as always. If you're listening back on the audio platform, please give us a like and a subscription and a review on the platform you're listening on. We will be back next time. Stay safe, stay well. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24 7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.